Welcome to the Cancer Care Network workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments during the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero, on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress and the Treatment of Multiple Myeloma. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other blood cancer and, and cancer organizations. And really, because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have on the call today over 426 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Germany, Japan, India, Nigeria, South Africa, and United Kingdom, so really from all over the world. And it's really a credit to each of you that you are choosing to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, Celgene Corporation, Novartis Oncology, and Takeda Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have just the best speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. William Bensinger. Dr. Bensinger is um, with Myeloma and Transplant Program, Swedish Cancer Institute in Seattle, Washington. And Dr. Bensinger is going to be addressing a discussion of the progress and the treatment of multiple myeloma, and also will give you some background about multiple myeloma as well. He will also discuss current standard of care, including the role of transplantation role of transplantation, and new and emerging treatment approaches. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bensinger. Thank you, Carolyn. I really want to express my appreciation at being invited to speak in this conference. Uh, it's always a pleasure, and I consider an honor to uh, talk about this disease, uh, which is becoming increasingly important in, the, in cancer care in general. First, I'd like to spend a few minutes just telling you about myeloma. Most of you know this, but for those who don't, this is a cancer of the bone marrow, specifically a cancer involving plasma cells, which are normally antibody-producing cells. And these cells reside in the marrow and do their job in addition to uh, playing a role in bone uh, health. These cells, when they become abnormal, called and we call them myeloma cells, fill up the bone marrow in an uncontrolled fashion, and they typically produce large amounts of proteins, which we call monoclonal proteins, that can appear in the blood or in the urine. But as the marrow fills up, this can lead to problems with anemia, which is low red blood cells, uh, abnormalities in kidney function, and bone disease. We don't know the underlying cause of myeloma, but we do know that genetic alterations that occur in plasma cells lead up to the development of the disease. This is not a rare disease, uh, but it's not uh, a common disease. There are approximately 32,000 new cases in the United States on a yearly basis, and there are about 120,000 people in the U.S. living with myeloma. The median age at diagnosis is 69 years. 
Uh, and this is important because certain treatments such as transplant may be limited to patients over the age of 70. The disease is treatable and becoming easier and easier to treat, but at the present time, it's still a very hard disease to eradicate. But with the new drugs and new treatments and stem cell transplant, survival has improved dramatically in the, in the past 10 to 15 years. Now, patients, when they present, can have bone pain or fatigue or weight loss, numbness or tingling, frequent infections, but up to a quarter of patients have no symptoms at the time they're diagnosed. And one, that raises one of the questions about when to treat. Often uh, patients in a very early part of the disease may be asymptomatic and it isn't clear when to treat a patient. Uh, it is clear when patients are anemic or have bone damage or high calcium level or frequent infections or kidney damage, these are patients that clearly need treatment. Um, so generally mild anemia or osteoporosis without bone disease are not necessarily indications for treatment. But in the last five to six years, the International Myeloma Working Group has reclassified patients we used to think of as asymptomatic uh, who have high numbers of myeloma cells in their bone marrow or high serum-free light chains, which are one of the monoclonal markers we look at, or if they have bone lesions without being symptomatic. They've been reclassified as having symptomatic disease and are usually offered treatment at that time. Now, this disease, as I said, responds well to multiple different combinations of drugs. Two or three drugs are used at a time. The majority, almost 100% of patients, are responding to the current therapies. Complete responses, however, only occur in about half of the patients. But as part of the therapy, stem cell transplant is an important component of treatment. Now, we, when we measure response, we talk about patients being in remission. And this is usually means no sign of the disease, which means the monoclonal proteins are no longer detectable in the blood or urine. When we look in the bone marrow, we don't find any abnormal cells, and we don't see any evidence of progressive bone disease or increase in bone lesions. Um, we are looking more as a research tool at looking at higher levels of sensitivity, and the term minimal residual disease has been coined to look for rarer cells. These seem to be important for outcome for patients, but are still largely a research tool and are not used uh, as, as a routine form of monitoring patients. Now, when it comes to treatment, we have a number of drug classes that are available. Corticosteroids are a mainstay and have remained so almost since uh, treatment was initiated for this disease. Prednisone is used, but dexamethasone, a more potent steroid, is more commonly used. Uh, alkylators are still used. Uh, the major one is melphalan, which is used in stem cell transplant, which I will talk about later. But cyclophosphamid and less commonly bendamustine are also alkylators that are used. The newer drug classes that have arrived in the past 15 years are the so-called IMIDs or immunomodulators, 
And these include thalidomide, lenalidomide, and pomalidomide. And these are, these are important drugs in the treatment of myeloma. In addition, we have another class called proteasome inhibitors, bortezomib, carfilzomib, and the oral agent exazomib are used uh, in those classes of drugs. And then more recently in the last few years, we have several monoclonal antibodies that have become available. And these include daratumumab and a drug called elotuzumab. Uh, there are other classes that are less commonly used. Anthracyclines are not used very much anymore. And HDAC inhibitors are approved, but are generally not used as commonly as these other drugs. Once a patient starts treatment, they usually receive initial therapy, often to their best response. And some uh, some patients are treated with a fixed number of cycles of therapy. Some patients are treated until they reach a, a complete response or their disease appears not to be responding anymore. At that point, uh, patients who are considered transplant eligible are offered a stem cell transplant. Uh, Post-transplant, sometimes patients can be offered additional consolidation therapy but most patients then go on some sort of maintenance therapy to maintain their disease control. Patients who are not transplant eligible are generally treated with the same combination of drugs used for initial therapy as long as they're responding. Often the doses are reduced and adjusted so they don't have too many side effects from the treatment. And they stay on this as long as the drug combinations are working. Now, in terms of initial therapy, there's emerging data that three drug combinations seem to be better than two drug combinations. So by that I mean uh, typically two drug combinations would include a drug like bortezomib and dexamethasone or lenalidomide and dexamethasone. But there's definitely uh, strong data that adding a third drug uh, such as bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone are better than two drugs. And there are several trials that support that. This is true even of older patients, but older patients sometimes are less tolerant of three drug combinations. Uh, and so that has to be, the use of three drugs versus two has to be weighed against the particular patient. Do they have problems with their lungs or heart or other morbidities that may limit their ability to tolerate a three drug combination? After the initial therapy, as I said, transplant patients are offered a transplant. Otherwise, they continue on this therapy uh, until uh, patients relapse. I've mentioned some of the drug combinations that are used, bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone are common ones. Carfilzomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone is often used as well as a uh, three-drug combination. Alkylators can be used, such as cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dex, but most of us feel this is inferior to imid combinations, so they're falling out of favor. Now, the non-transplant candidates, there is, there is strong data with bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dex as initial therapy. 
And there is emerging data that substituting the monoclonal antibody daratumumab for bortezomib and adding it to lenalidomid-dex is a very good combination as initial therapy. There was a large trial reported at the last uh, American Society of Hematology meeting called the Maya trial that showed improved outcome for this combination. And it's very likely that's going to be approved by the FDA in the next couple of months and will emerge as a, as a new treatment option, mainly for older patients. Now, as I mentioned, high-dose therapy is an important component of treatment for eligible patients. And that's because this, this high-dose therapy and stem cell transplant results in higher complete response rates than conventional therapy. It prolongs the disease remission and overall survival. And it's a standard of care, really, for most patients. Most of the trials have been done in patients up to the age of 65 to 70. We don't have much data in older patients, although retrospective studies have shown benefits for older patients as well. Now, allogeneic stem cell transplants are occasionally offered mainly in the context of a trial, but because of higher complications, including mortality and graft-versus-host disease, these transplants are usually only offered to select patients within a trial. Autotransplants are offered to the majority of younger patients if they have a good performance status, adequate organ function, and they can benefit even if they have relapsed or resistant disease. As I mentioned, generally patients under 70 are offered this, but older patients can as well. I mentioned some of the emerging therapies, daratumumab in particular, um, added to lenalidomid and dexamethasone. We're also studying as emerging therapy four drug combinations, really with monoclonal antibodies, adding either daratumumab or uh, elituzumab, the other monoclonal antibody, to combinations of bortezomib, lenalidomid, and dex, or carfilzomib, lenalidomid, and dex. And the idea of these four drug combinations are produce to produce higher response rates and more durable remissions. The nice thing about these antibodies is they don't seem to add a lot of extra toxicity. And so this, is, this may well be emerging as the standard of care in years to come, although it's not that way at the present time. We remain on, with triplets. And so I think at that point I'll conclude my comments and turn it over uh, back to the next speaker. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really excellent and really outstanding, as always, and just really a wonderful overview of multi-myeloma treatments. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, and um, our next speaker is Dr. Andrew Yee. Dr. Yee is instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School, Center for Multi-Myeloma, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. And uh, Dr. Dr. Yee will be addressing um, clinical trial updates, symptom and pain management, and reducing complications of bone disease. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Yee. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, uh, for giving me the opportunity to, to speak today, and, and it is an honor and a privilege to talk about something that's you know, near and dear for all of us to be able to uh, take care of patients with multiple myeloma. 
and as um, you know, Dr. Benzinger, as you could hear from Dr. Benzinger's uh, presentation, there have been a lot of you know exciting developments over the years in terms of uh, newer therapies, uh, newer treatments for multiple myeloma, and with, for example, uh, the drugs that you're hearing about with like daratumumab. And I think the exciting thing with multiple myeloma is that there continues to be ongoing progress. Uh, forward with with this disease, and I always tell patients that you know what we talk about, you know, this year is going to be different, like is different than what I told patients the previous year or the years before. And I think one uh, emerging treatment option that uh, we we've that everyone in the field is really excited about is this uh, this uh, idea of the chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, also known as CAR-T therapy. And this therapy targets um, a particular protein that's found on the surface of plasma cells called BCMA. And the uh, monoclonal antibodies that Dr. Benziger uh, was was talking about before, for example, daratumumab targets uh, CD38 and elotuzumab targets SLAM F7, and there's another protein, uh, BCMA, that is of interest and in which is targeted by this CAR-T therapy. Now, uh, in CAR-T, with CAR-T therapy, this is a, 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 a plan where patients' white blood cells are collected, and these white blood cells are reprogrammed to target a protein of interest. So it turns out that this has already been established for uh, for a different kind of white blood cell cancer, for like lymphoma and acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So in those diseases, uh, patients' white blood cells are collected, and then they've been reprogrammed through genetic engineering to attack uh, CD19. And based on results of prior trials, uh, these therapies are now approved and in, and are in use for patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So these are treatments such as uh, Kimraya and Yescarta. And for those diseases, uh, these treatments have been, have been a game changer. And right now we're in active clinical trials to see if we can apply the same approach to multiple myeloma. And in multiple myeloma, these cells, instead of uh, these cells, instead of attacking CD19, they've been reprogrammed to attack BCMA, which is on the surface of plasma cells. Now, a question that comes up is, at, at what point in therapy is a CAR-T considered? And right now, the current clinical trials are really looking at patients who have been through multiple lines of treatment and who have been through all the conventional uh, prior regimens like lenalidomide and pomalidomide, carfilzomib, and daratumumab. And the, uh, so it's mainly reserved for patients who are, are looking for newer treatment options. And one thing about CAR, so in a way it is, it, is, it is a form of cellular therapy where it is using patients' white blood cells, but it's different than uh, what you heard about Dr. Bensinger talking about with the transplant where you know, the heavy lifting is done by the chemotherapy with a high-dose melphalan, and the patient's stem cells are used to recharge the uh, immune system faster and recharge the bone marrow faster. And what's different about CAR-T is that 
it's your, the patient's, their own white blood cells are being reprogrammed, and these white blood cells are being used to uh, target the myeloma cells. And the preliminary findings from the CAR-T therapy are really very encouraging and in the sense that these are patients who have been through multiple lines of therapy, you know, on the upwards of, you know, seven or more lines of previous treatment. And, and at that time, these patients didn't really have much in the way of treatment options. And we've, the responses that have been seen have been really remarkable in the sense of the patients have been having complete responses without any disease detectable. Uh, and in many patients, they've achieved, majority of patients have achieved a complete response. And the ongoing question is, you know, how long do these responses, is, is to assess the durability of these responses. On average, it's about patients have been able to go, you know, about one year without having to do any other treatment, which is remarkable in the sense that as many patients on the phone call know is that, you know, with myeloma therapy, there's an ongoing treatment. And what is remarkable about CAR-T is that you're able to do one treatment and then you're able to enjoy this period of time when you don't have to be on any other therapy. Now, the treatment um, is under active uh, investigation, and there are several you know, side effects for patients to be aware of in, in the sense that uh, these CAR T cells, when you put them in the body, they, they tend to stir the pot, so to speak. So patients can are typically hospitalized to help monitor for side effects. And the side effects from this are different than from the high-dose melphalan-autologous stem cell transplant in the sense that patients can have two kinds of, 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 of side effects. One is called the cytokine release syndrome in the sense that when these white blood cells are, are stirring the pot, they can release a lot of inflammatory markers, and patients can get quite, um, they can have many symptoms like fevers or shortness of breath or lowering their blood pressure. Now, in the past, when this therapy was first being developed in the, for lymphoma or for leukemia, it's not uncommonly patients would have to go to the ICU because they could get quite ill. But now that there's been more experience with this type of therapy, that's less common, and we have treatments to help minimize that risk. And, and the second uh, potential side effect would be this, idea, this uh, neurotoxicity where patients can get confused. Uh, but and and rarely some patients can have life-threatening complications. So I think you know right now these trials are current. These uh, the CAR T is currently under active investigation for you know patients who have been through multiple lines of treatment, and we're hoping that uh, as we have more uh, trial data that this is something that will be approved in the near future. You know, may say maybe next year or something. And there are several companies that are that have this uh, product under investigation. They're, at the same time, they're also looking at moving it, exploring at earlier uh, lines of treatment for, for patients who, uh, not, so not necessarily waiting for patients to have been through multiple lines of treatment, but looking at earlier. Now, related to uh, CAR-T is that instead of using, um, I'm sorry, related to BCMA is that instead of using CAR-T to attack BCMA, we're also looking at other approaches for targeting BCMA, and that involves uh, monoclonal antibodies, um, so there's one drug that's under, uh, there's several uh, drugs that are under investigation for targeting uh, BCMA as an antibody drug conjugate. So this is less involved to, than CAR-T, where CAR-T, you're generally in the hospital and you have all these potential side effects to be aware of, whereas the antibodies are sort of similar to like daratumumab member elotuzumab in terms of the schedule. And there's also another way of attacking BCMA, and that's with this bispecific T-cell engager where 
it's an antibody that brings together both the myeloma cell and the uh, and and uh, T cells together to help attack the myeloma cell. So I think uh, I think BSMA has definitely emerged as an exciting new target, and I think we should have we expect a lot of forward progress with that. Um, and then I also wanted to so I think I also wanted to also turn my attention to you know, how I think about uh, managing bone disease, and I think a big development for managing bone disease is uh, the approval of this uh, of this drug called denosumab. It's also known as Exgeva. And as many people on the phone call know, bone disease is sort of not sort of bone disease can be a major uh, side, uh, can be a major complication of multiple myeloma. So. If you look hard enough, the majority of patients will have some degree of bone involvement, and a good proportion of patients can have symptoms from their bone involvement, such as fractures or bone pain. And a current standard practice for managing bone disease and preventing complications of bone disease is to use bisphosphonate drugs like pemidronate, also known as aridia, or um, zoledronic acid, which is also known as uh, zomata. So both of these drugs... Um, they deposit in the bone and prevent osteoclasts from recycling the bone. Since it turns out that in multiple myeloma, one of the ways that multiple myeloma causes the damage to the bone is that it increases the activity of osteoclasts, which are involved in bone resorption. And drugs like pemidronate or zomata help uh, reduce that recycling process and help prevent bone-related complications. Now, a drug that was recently approved is denosumab or Exgeva. And this drug is another way of targeting the osteoclast, but the way it does it is that it inhibits uh, rank ligand, which is a growth factor for osteoclasts and which is involved in stimulating osteoclast activity. And what is different about this drug, Exgeva, compared to the other drugs is that it's a monoclonal antibody and it's given as a shot in the stomach. Uh, it also turns out that Exgeva is also known as Prolia, which is approved in, for use of in treating osteoporosis. The difference is that, os, that with Exgeva, it's a, 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 the way we think about Exgeva is that it, the dose is double of Prolia, and it's given about once a month. Now, there was a randomized trial which compared uh, Exgeva or denosumab to, to, to Zomata, and they found that in terms of preventing bone complications, both were very similar in their efficacy, but one of the main advantages for Exgeva compared to Zomata is that one, off the bat, it's much more convenient in the sense that it's an injection in the stomach, sort of similar to Velc in a Velcade injection, uh, so you don't have to have an IV place for that. And then number two is that your risk of developing kidney problems tends to be less with uh, Exgeva compared to Zomata. So I think that in general, you know, kidney-related trouble is something that many myeloma patients may encounter. So I think that's one advantage for, for denosumab is that it's less likely to cause that. And, and, and for patients who have underlying kidney trouble, I think that drug is probably safer too in terms of preventing kidney troubles from getting worse. The other unique feature about denosumab is that it's less likely to be associated with acute phase reactions. So 
that's another way of, you know, when some, that's that, so acute phase reaction can be fevers or muscle aches or symptoms like that, so you're less likely to have side effects with that. Um, some of the limitations with uh, denosum, just to be aware of, is that it can be associated with, uh, with lowering of calcium more so than with, than with Zomata. So with that in mind, it's very important for patients to stay on calcium supplements as well as making sure their vitamin D levels are adequate before they start this medication. Another big factor is that the cost of denosumabicam is significant, so that's something to think about in the grand scheme of things. So it is significantly more expensive than Zomata. And thirdly is that people have found that if you stop uh, denosumab altogether, there can be uh, increased, um, you might be at more risk for having, say, for people if you were to hold it all together. But I think, you know, for patients for bone disease and for managing uh, some of the complications, but I think that this Exgiva is a big step forward, especially, you know, for patients who have uh, underlying kidney troubles. I think... Um, I think, Carolyn, at this point, I could, I would like to pass the, uh, uh, pass it on back, back to you. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Yu. That was really outstanding and a wonderful presentation. And again, um, a lot of uh, very important information for everybody to have. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. And our next um, speaker is Dr. Elizabeth um, O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is a director Lifestyle Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Director, Mass General Cancer Center's Survivorship Program, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And, uh, and Dr. Um, O'Donnell is going to be addressing, uh, will be addressing lifestyle and mobility, physical activity concerns, tips and guidelines, and communicating with the healthcare team about your survivorship and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you very much for the invitation uh, to participate uh, in this teleconference and to address something uh, that we don't give a, are not able to talk about a lot in our myeloma clinics. So, uh, in addition to my roles. Um, in the Lifestyle Medicine Clinic and Survivorship, I'm also a multiple myeloma doctor and researcher. And one of the things that I struggle with as a provider is taking out the time and carving it out to allow patients the opportunity to talk about their quality of life. We know as multiple myeloma doctors that quality of life can be an issue for our patients. Uh, as my colleagues have talked about, this is a long-term illness and patients see a lot of therapy over the duration of their experience with the illness. We do have quality of life data uh, looking at multiple myeloma as compared with other types of cancers, and we know that our quality of life can be lower uh, than that of other cancers, and specifically in terms of physical functioning. I think that that is probably multifactorial, uh, due in part to the disease itself and some of the problems that multiple myeloma uh, causes that Dr. Bensinger mentioned, like disease of the bone. But I think another component of it is deconditioning that occurs over time when you're on therapy for myeloma year in and year out. And specifically, the use of steroids, dexamethasone, for example, can cause loss of lean muscle mass and, and uh, increase in uh, body fat. And those do have significant effects on patients over time, not to mention the fact that people are aging as they go through their myeloma treatment. 
So one of the things uh, that we do here at our hospital is talk about lifestyle and goals. And there are specific recommendations for cancer patients uh, that are set up by the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Cancer Society. And those are uh, that all cancer patients are recommended to aspire to 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. Said differently, that's about 30 minutes, five days a week of, of exercise. And that can be very hard uh, for patients who don't feel well. So if that's the goal, you know, what is the foundation and what, are, what is the path to patients getting to a higher level activity? We know we have good data that show that about a third of all cancer patients meet this guideline. And so the first step for any myeloma patient is talking to their doctor about, you know, their their physical fitness, their wellness, simple things like the ability to get out of a chair, uh, pain that they're having. And uh, before any patient starts to think about exercising and fitness and wellness, the first thing to do in a myeloma patient is to make sure that their bones are safe uh, and not at risk of any kind of fracture or injury from exercise. There are also basic screening questions about chest pain and shortness of breath that are part of a standard assessment. One of the things that I recommend to many of my patients is starting with physical therapy. Physical therapy is covered by insurance. Diagnosis codes such as cancer-related fatigue or deconditioning are ways in which people can go to physical therapy and get guidance and instruction uh, and be assessed in a safe environment for their ability to exercise and do physical rehab. For patients who are going into the hospital for prolonged periods, such as for autologous stem cell transplant or CAR T-cell, a significant amount of deconditioning can happen in just two to three weeks of spending most of your time in bed or a chair. Typically in a hospital, say, there will be physical therapy involved, uh, but continuing that can be very important for patients so they get back to the level that they were at when they came in. Um, One of the major themes of any activity program for a cancer patient is not just the activity itself, but the avoidance of inactivity. We have become more sedentary uh, in the last decades uh, here in America, and there are many ways that we can avoid sedentary behavior and help our general fitness. Many people have smartphones. Simple things in your daily life, like standing up when you're talking on the phone and walking or continuing to do your activities of daily living, even when you're sick, are important. Particularly when people are first diagnosed, there's a tendency to stop doing things that you've routinely done or to have family members start taking over things. And as long as you're not limited by pain, it's important to continue to do your activities of daily living and stay um, engaged so that you preserve the muscle mass that you have and are able to even build off it as you go through therapy. Um, One of the other you know, main challenges for patients is finding activities uh, that are safe and good for them. Non-weight-bearing activities such as uh, stationary bikes or water-based aerobics uh, can be safe choices for multiple myeloma patients. Uh, But even walking, moderate-intensity walking means walking to the point where you can uh, get a few words out but not have a complete conversation. These are options that are accessible uh, to all patients. Another important part of quality of life uh, and the lifestyle assessment is also nutrition. Most cancer centers do have nutritionists, uh, and again, this is something that is typically covered by insurance. There's 
an opportunity there to meet, to discuss your current habits. Some things that we do know is that uh, American Cancer Society recommends not consuming red meat more than once per week. Uh, generally avoid uh, processed foods such as deli meats uh, no more frequently than once per week as well. American Cancer Society recommends that women not consume more than one alcoholic beverage a day and two for men. Uh, and so there are some basic guidelines, and many patients want to know what these guidelines are, um, but often there are so many things that go into appointment that they don't get to ask. Um, so if you feel that you want to have a more thorough discussion about your nutrition, do inquire at your cancer center about the opportunity to speak to a nutritionist. Um, some cancer centers also have uh, sexual health counselors, which is another element of quality of life that is also uh, affected by cancer therapy. Um, and uh, many cancer centers can provide counseling for common issues that many, many patients have. Uh, in general, both hospitals and cancer centers have more resources uh, than, uh, you know, are necessarily advertised. So both your oncologist and your general hospital or cancer center can play a role in identifying the resources that may help you achieve the quality of life that you seek. Um, and I know we have a little bit of a limit on time, but I'm happy to take more specific questions uh, as we roll into the question-answer portion of this conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really very interesting, and we've really never had this level of presentation about physical activity on the call before, so we really appreciate um, what you've said, and I hope that there will be questions for you during the Q&A because it's an important part as well of, of just living with, um, with multiple myeloma. So thank you. Um, we're going to take questions in just uh, about two minutes. I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care. So please, all of you, um, prepare your questions. Some of you have been submitting them already, um, but um, I will also... Um, have um, Norma explain to you how to care for questions, but before I do that, so Cancer Care is a national organization, and um, we provide free services to people living with uh, multiple myeloma and all cancers and all blood cancers and uh, of all ages. And um, we um, offer both um, practical and financial assistance. We do have a copay foundation as well um, to help with some of those costs of, of treatment and care. Um, we also do offer our counseling services with our master's level trained oncology social workers. It means a chance for you to speak with a social worker about your concerns, what is troubling you, um, perhaps things like how do I talk to my children or grandchildren about my not being able to do some things with them or, or about my myeloma or how do I, if you're still working, how do I talk to my workplace about um, my having a myeloma um, so that I can get an accommodation in the workplace, um, or, um, or how do I think about it for myself, and, and how do I talk to my friends. So, and there's so many other questions that you all know occur all the time. We also do offer support groups, both on the telephone and online, and those support groups um, can be very helpful to people because they are, you don't have to travel somewhere to go to them. Um, the telephone ones are just on the telephone, the, um, and they're on a specific time. The online groups are actually um, 24 hours a day, so any time of the day or night you can post something on those, and they are all moderated by an oncology social worker um, checking the posts and, and commenting with you. Um, the um, online groups, there's 138 of those groups, so a lot of those groups, and they span therefore um, caregivers for people living with multiple myeloma. 
for um, partners and spouses and family members and uh, young adults um, who may be caregivers. Um, we also have specific types of online support groups, specific types of cancer. So again, those are all, um, they're very popular and they're also, again, very accessible to people who like using um, an online community for communication. We do offer these programs, so we have many of them coming up, and we do also have publications. And so those are the services basically that you can access from Cancer Care, um, and you, um, I hope that you'll find that useful. And we will, at the end of the program, you'll be getting an evaluation. Probably you'll get it tomorrow, actually. And the evaluation will have um, various resources that we mentioned during the program, and you'll be getting all the phone numbers and websites and all that information that you need to be able to follow up. So with that all being said, we now have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Norma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your question, I'm out at the very end of the call, I'll give you all sorts of suggestions of how to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take, Norma. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on the touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Emil F. Your line is open. Yes, uh, very good workshop. How can one be diagnosed for multiple myeloma? Is there a blood test or any standard blood work that can uh, diagnose it? Well, thank you, Emil, for that question. It's an excellent question. And Dr. Bensinger, could you address that question, please? Sure. So the multiple myeloma is generally um, diagnosed with a variety of tests. There are blood tests looking for uh, what we call monoclonal proteins, and this is done with a test called a serum protein electrophoresis. It's often done in conjunction with another more definitive test called immunofixation, which really tells us the type of protein they're making. There are also uh, other blood tests that are helpful, such as serum-free light chains, uh, and these this can be done in the blood. We can also measure light chains in the urine, and this is also done. The most definitive test to clinch the diagnosis is when a patient presents with a lesion on their bone, either a plasma cytoma that can be biopsied to confirm myeloma, or a bone marrow test showing large numbers of these abnormal cells in the bone marrow. Now, there are quite a few additional tests that are done in terms of staging and confirmation, but the, the definitive tests are the ones that I've mentioned to really uh, make that diagnosis. Well, thank you so much. Um, and um, I hope that helps me. I'll thank you for that question. And um, our next question is an online question um, for Dr. Yi. I recently read about Avenity, a drug in trial for osteoporosis that actually increases bone density. Um, does this hold promise as a possible replacement for bisphosphonates and myeloma? Right. Uh, I think that question is uh, very timely. So I think for people uh, in the audience who may not be familiar with this, this is a drug that was just recently approved for osteoporosis. And this is um, a drug that is that targets sclerostin. So I think it's an, uh, I believe it's an anti-sclerostin 
antibody. And it works through a mechanism that's completely different than the drugs that we currently think about for, for, for bone-related problems. So the drugs that we currently have, like like Aredia, Zomeda, and uh, Exgiva, target the osteoclast and prevent, the, and prevent bone resorption. And this drug, which was just approved, I think, a week or two weeks ago, uh, targets sclerostin. And by doing that, I believe it helps stimulate bone formation. Now... The uh, and then there are other drugs for osteo which are not commonly used in myeloma. But I think uh, the, the, your question is very timely because it turns out that I'm, that uh, members of our group are going to try and meet with the company to look at uh, seeing how we can use this drug in multiple myelomas. Because I think there are preclinical models that suggest it may be helpful. And one thing I did not talk about earlier with the, uh, we know with Exgiva, Zomeda, or Aridia is that there's this risk of this condition called osteo necrosis of the jaw, which is uh, a known problem with these types of drugs. Less than 5% of patients may experience it, where if you, have a, if you were to have like an extraction, it, it, there's an area of the jaw that doesn't heal properly. And I think that this newer drug, which was just FDA approved, I'm not sure if there's that risk has been observed or not. So I think that could be a really exciting uh, pathway forward. So I think, um, you know, stay tuned. Excellent. Thank you. Um, uh, and um, a question for um, Dr. O'Donnell. What lifestyle changes should patients with multi-myeloma consider? So I think the most important thing is there are two, actually, both diet and exercise. Starting with exercise, as I mentioned, there are specific guidelines and recommendations. Why does this matter? Why does it matter if patients exercise and stay healthy? It has been shown in numerous clinical trials, including those of multiple myeloma, that exercise not only improves physical function, but also can improve um, levels of anxiety and depression, which are quite common among cancer patients. So there's an overall quality of life benefit seen uh, in almost all, in most exercise studies conducted. And then there's the physical functioning benefit. To do well with therapy over time, it's important to maintain your physical wellness. As anybody who's on this call and listening knows, it is a long journey with multiple myeloma. And as such, you really need to continue to reinforce yourself. Um, so exercising with a goal of getting up to a half an hour, five days a week. And by the way, it doesn't matter if that's done continuously or if that means you know, 15 minutes of walking somewhere in the morning and 15 minutes more of walking in the evening will help you not only maintain your stamina, and wellness, but may also improve your quality of life. Nutrition is important because a lot of myeloma therapies, for many reasons, but particularly for myeloma because we do use a lot of corticosteroids and specifically dexamethasone. Dexamethasone is a miracle drug for a number of reasons, but like anything, it comes with a cost, and that cost can be uh, increases in blood sugar, increases in blood pressure, uh, change in body composition so that you have more belly fat and less good muscle in your core um, core muscle groups. And, and so thinking about your diet as a tool for how you live your life is important. Trying to have a plant-based diet is recommended so that two-thirds of your diet come from plants, as I mentioned, limiting your consumption of red meats, and also looking to alternative sources for proteins. So uh, fish in particular are good sources of protein. Nuts uh, and other uh, dietary proteins should be favored above the red meats. 
all of this will hopefully lend to global better health uh, and feeling better. Excellent. Well, thank you. That's, so I hope that will be helpful to people. And uh, it's definitely these are important things. I guess people do themselves. If you want to comment on that too, it it puts uh, it it I guess it puts the uh, um. Well, it gives people some autonomy. You know, so there's so much in a cancer patient's existence that's beyond their control. First and foremost, having the condition of multiple myeloma. But secondarily, um, so many of the losses just in terms of the freedom of your life and, and having to be at a hospital uh, on a given schedule to re receive therapy. So sometimes patients describe a loss of not only autonomy but a betrayal. Uh, their body has betrayed them, um, and they don't feel that they have control. And so this is one way in which patients can take back that control and can help themselves, something you can do beyond what the medicines are doing for you. And there's something very empowering and uplifting about doing that. Thank you. Excellent. And a question for Dr. Bensinger. This is a long question. I'm going to try to summarize it, Dr. Bensinger. Um, and again, the, it's about a specific person situation, but I suspect that perhaps if we can generalize some of the concepts here for how it affects others as well on the call. Um, so I was diagnosed in 2014 at the age of 60. I had lambda level of over 10,000, low hemoglobin, and my creatinine was 8.5. Um, I underwent uh, CRD treatment and then a SCT, after which I achieved SCR and became MRD negative. I did not do any maintenance, and in the last six months, my lambda started slowly rising and stays at 116 now. My hemoglobin and creatinine are stable, and I don't have any new lytic bone lesions. One of my doctors is suggesting that I start new treatment, but my other oncologist says I can wait until my lambda numbers start my lambda numbers start doubling on a monthly basis. And the person's really asking about which advice should I follow, which we can't really do that on this program. But if you could talk about this in some general way that helps us help people understand. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, um, really, th this uh, brings to light an interesting distinction about uh, recurrence. There's so-called uh, chemical relapse versus symptomatic relapse. And by chemical relapse, I'm referring to simply a rising light chain or a rising monoclonal protein, but in a patient with no other signs or symptoms, such as high calcium or increasing bone pain or increasing anemia or deterioration in kidney function. Those patients have clearly symptomatic myeloma, and those patients clearly need treatment. Just a rising protein, either by light chain or, or by a, a monoclonal protein in the blood, you don't necessarily need to start treatment. And there is certainly uh, differing uh, opinions from doctors about whether or not such patients should initiate treatment. In, uh, in the case of someone who has a slowly rising light chain, but they're otherwise asymptomatic, um, it may be perfectly fine to monitor them closely, either monthly or every other month, and just follow the light chain until such time as it's clear it's really starting to increase, and then treatment could be initiated. 
Occasionally, if a patient has very high-risk myeloma, as uh, evidenced by prior genetic abnormalities in their myeloma cells, or presented in a ver- initially presented in a very aggressive way, uh, some doctors would prefer to treat those patients earlier with a rising protein. This could have been your case is why your doc- one of your doctors is recommending early treatment. But I think if, you're, if you don't have symptomatic disease and you're, the only evidence of recurrence is this slowly rising protein, uh, it may be okay for you to wait. Now, I would advise that other things be looked at. So you probably should have a bone marrow to check to see what it, what's going on there. You should have some uh, special x-rays such as an MRI or perhaps even a PET CT to see if there's disease that's growing in other areas. But I think taking all that into account, you can determine uh, if it's appropriate to start therapy now or simply to wait. Okay, thank you. Um, and um, question for Dr. McDonald. Um, is it recommended that multi-myeloma patients eliminate sugar from their diet? I know this is a question that comes up on a number of our other programs as well and other cancers. Could you comment on this? Sure. So, you know, we don't have a wonderful, you know, phase three study of, you know, the effects of sugar uh, on multiple myeloma outcomes. And unfortunately, we don't have many good studies at all of of different types of diets and how they affect cancer outcomes. But what we can say is this, um, you know, sugar in large quantities, refined sugars, are generally not good for anybody. And so limiting the consumption of refined sugars, so white sugar, uh, is a generally good idea, particularly uh, if you have any challenges with your blood sugars that may be exacerbated by the dexamethasone or other steroid that you might be receiving. Um, you know, again, I, I always like this analogy. When you think about what sugar cane looks like, if you've ever seen one in the grocery store, it's this dense, fibrous, uh, you know, branch almost, and it's it, 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 Mother Nature did not intend us to have big bowls of white sugar. And so I think to the extent that you can limit the consumption of re- refined sugar, it is a dietary recommendation. But we do not have uh, specific data in terms of sugar consumption uh, and outcomes in myeloma that I am aware of. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Yee. My wife begins Delcade next week and is fearful of side effects and the whole process. Any suggestions on how to help her prepare? So, so yeah, so, you know, Velcade, um I think, you know, Velcade is, a, you know, one of the core drugs uh, we use in multiple myeloma. I think there are several things to be aware of. And, and, the, and the number one thing is, is uh, you know, peripheral neuropathy. And peripheral neuropathy generally means, you know, numbness is generally is characterized by numbness and tingling. It can begin as numbness and tingling in the feet, and then that can move upward. I think historically when Velcade was given mainly intravenously, the risk of having that side effect was much higher, but now that we give it uh, typically subcutaneously, as in like in the fat of the abdomen, the risk is lower. But I think that's probably the number one thing to be aware of is to to be vigilant for that side effect because if it – if it's an ongoing issue, sometimes that numbness and tingling can be more longer-lasting and can, in some patients, become uh, permanent. But I think for, for patients where it, it appears and you hold the medication or you reduce the dose, in many patients, the, that numbness and tingling, that, that can improve significantly. So that's 
probably the number one thing to be aware of. The, the other things to be aware of is that there is always, um, you know, the medications like Velcade and other ones in, in the drug class can be at risk for shingles. So typically we recommend uh, patients uh, have, uh, you know, take acyclovir or similar medications to prevent uh, rec- uh, risk of shingles developing. We don't know if having the shingles vaccine will eliminate that risk or not, so we still continue to recommend uh, taking medications like that, even if you've had the shingles vaccine. Um, less common uh, side effects, in addition, you can also have a rash that from the injection of the abdomen, which generally is self-limited. Some patients can have some GI side effects like loosening of the stools, but that's not, um, it's usually a short-term thing, and for many patients, the Velcade uh, injections uh, are not an issue. A rarer side effect that, that it may not patients may not uh, appreciate uh, that doesn't always obvious is that sometimes uh, the velcro can cause uh, styes to form uh, along the eyelids, and that's not. You know, I think for oncologists in general, that's not like a usual side effect for many of the drugs we give. But for some reason, drugs like velcro can be associated with uh, styes or or kind of makes the uh, eyelashes can be. Uh, there's things can accumulate, or other we call it chalazion or chalazia or blepharitis. So that's another side effect to just be aware of with this medication. But for most people, the the Velcade goes goes very well and it's very effective. And, and I tell patients, to there's, oh, sorry, sorry, no, sorry, sorry. Now I, I tell patients there generally is not much drama with this treatment. So. Excellent. And are there things that they, the team can do to help with those side effects that you mentioned in terms of managing them and things like that? Right. I think um, for the peripheral, the, the main thing is just to be aware that it can happen and let the provider know that it's happening so that way the provider can take action such as holding the drug or lowering the dose or, or, or substituting vel- another drug for Velcade. And I know um, there, are some indivi- there are some groups that recommend um, you know, using vitamin supplements like B6, B12. Um, uh, but I generally haven't been routinely uh, been prescribing since I think the efficacy of, I mean, I know it's because patients take so many pills as it is to begin with, and I'm not sure how, um, you know, what the efficacy is. And moreover, I think uh, if you take B6 in high enough doses, that itself can cause peripheral neuropathy. Because uh, I remember I saw a patient who was taking B6 and had all this tingling, and I, I mean, anecdotally, and I discontinued the B6 and the neuropathy improved. So, um, and then, you know, for some of these other side effects, like the, like the styes that can form that, I generally, that doesn't happen very often, but I think, uh, I think attention to, like, some people put, uh, you know, baby shampoo to help wash the eyelids and keeping that clean can help minimize that. And it gets more complicated than sometimes we would involve, like, an ophthalmologist. Thank you. And we have one, um, thank you very much, and we have one uh, telephone question, or oh, last question. <laughs> yes. Carol W., your line is open. Yes, um, I'm celebrating 20 years this month uh, from a transplant by Dr. Bensinger. Thank you very much. Um, but I have a question about some stored stem cells. I have some still frozen, and it's been 20 years, and I don't know if I should continue storing them if their life is over. Do you have any advice on that? Good question, Carol. Thank you, Dr. Bensinger. <laughs> well, first let me tell you what a wonderful dilemma to have. Um, <laughs> that's fantastic that you're 20 years out. Uh, I'm really pleased to hear that. 
Um, I would honestly say that after 20 years, you probably can let those cells go. We certainly um, worry about uh, recurrence in the first uh, five to 10 years. You're well beyond that point in time. In addition, uh, there really is, a, I think, a legitimate question about cells that have been stored that long still being uh, useful for uh, helping your blood counts recover should you want another transplant. So my advice is after 20 years, I think you can let them go. Wow. And that is quite an amazing question to end up a call with and, and an answer from Dr. Bensinger. So thank you, Carol, for that wonderful question. And I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call today, I must say this. And, and also um, our speakers and also those of you who have asked such questions or actually made such wonderful comments during the call as well. Um, and this is a one-hour program, so although we do have many more questions in queue, um, we, we do, in fairness to all of you, need to conclude the call very soon. Um, and I did say that if you do have other questions, um, or even if you asked a question today, um, so a couple of things. One is, any information you've learned today, please take it back to your healthcare team. We hope you have learned things and that you can ask more informative questions of your healthcare team. And if you didn't get to ask a question, always start with your healthcare team as a beginning because they, they know all the details about you, of course. But in addition, I know everyone on the call does like to get information from other places as well. And um, so because there are some really wonderful organizations out there in terms of medical questions that you may have in addition to your healthcare team, I would say the Leukemia Lymphoma Society is a wonderful resource um, because they have information about myeloma and they have all kinds of fact sheets and, uh, and a call center. So for medical questions, I would say that would be a wonderful place for you to consider. And there are many other blood cancer organizations that are listed um, that you'll be getting information about in our resources and in your evaluation that you'll get at the end of the call. And those also are places that are vetted and they're safe for you to call in terms of getting credible and evidence-based information, which is really what you want to have. Um, for those of you who have more, uh, more psychosocial needs or want to talk to a social worker or get some practical or financial assistance, I would say you can start with calling Cancer Care, 1-800-813-4673, or you may um, visit our website at www.cancercare.org, and then our staff would be able to help you with any of those other services that you may find helpful in terms of just any counseling services that you may want. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we do not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with multiple myeloma with any type of blood cancer or cancer in general. Uh, please know there are many, many resources out there for you. Um, and um, you can use Cancer Care as a one-stop shopping. You can start with us if you need to, if you have a problem that you're struggling with. Um, if we don't have a solution, um, we actually will refer you. And also your healthcare team, of course, also never forget them. Um, maybe you have a question about finances and you haven't really mentioned to your healthcare team about perhaps a, a, a new medication you may, may be, uh, prescribe. Ask them about it first because they may have quite a amount of resources within their own institution and then you can also contact us for those things as well. So just be aware that there are resources out there and it's okay to ask questions about, you know, about what you need. So again, I want to thank you all um, for your participation on, the, on this program today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.